Welcome to Moments with Deru podcast, season five, and I'm your host, Modoni. This is a space to inspire, encourage, and uplift you. You can join our community by visiting www.momentswithndero.com. Throughout this season, there will be a combination of solo and interview episodes where different thoughts will be shared, and I hope you'll grab a hold of one or two words and apply them into your lives. With that said, let's dive in. Today's guest is an associate professor of mechanical engineering and civil and environmental engineering at Northwestern University. He received his BS degree from the University of Lagos, Nigeria, and his MS and PhD degrees from Boston University, all in mechanical engineering. His research focuses on nanoscale heat transport measurements and thermal properties of small scale materials, experimental mechanics of soft biological materials and optical and elastic wave sensors. His research is relevant to applications that involve nanoscale heat conduction elastic wave propagation, optical sensing, and nanometrology. He currently serves as a co-director for the Center for Smart Structures and Materials at Northwestern University. Welcome onto the show, Sheyi. Thank you very much. So before we dive into the word that you selected for this conversation, what's your earliest childhood memory? Ah, my earliest childhood memory. Ah, that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, I, I, you know, just from pictures, um, you know, that I've seen, I saw growing up and, you know, just, uh, you know, my memories of being in a loving and caring family. You know, I grew up with my dad and mom and my siblings. It was a great experience. Um, lots of adventure. My dad and mom traveled quite a bit. Uh, and so I got the opportunity, you know, and just the fortune of, of having to see, you know, some parts of the world that I probably wouldn't have, um, you know, later on in my, you know, when things got more difficult for my for my parents. So um, love, um, you know, my parents cared a lot for their children. They invested their time and effort in uh, strong morals, education, um, being, you know, uh, uh, you know, a um, a major theme in the family, um, in and then obviously uh, a big interest in in devotion to God. Uh, they went about it the way they knew best. And later on in life, when I was older, and uh, I was fortunate enough to, you know, to to hear, you know, the message of the gospel uh, of Christ. Uh, you know, I went in a slightly different direction from the one they chose. So, um, but I'm overall, I think, fond memories, great memories, loving memories, and, and very thankful um, for the for my childhood. That's so lovely. I can just hear gratitude and a lot of love. Yes. So, how did you transition? Obviously, as children, we have different dreams. So from a young yes. age, did you know that you were going to be an engineer or is it something that you stumbled along the way? Well, my dad is an engineer uh, and also a professor as well. So um, 
that was all what I saw modeled in front of me from my childhood. Uh, and so there's a sense that I would follow in my dad's footsteps. We had several conversations about science, you know, and engineering. I also got to see my dad model. Um, I saw, I heard a lot of great things about my dad's teaching. It was a great teacher, you know, so many, you know, um, graduates, um, you know, some of my dad's older students would, you know, when I meet them, they would tell me about the influence my dad had on their lives. And, and so just hearing that, um, you know, that human aspect, but also my dad's ability to explain difficult concepts, uh, you know, was very instrumental in the decisions I made to pursue engineering uh, at, uh, at, co at the college level and also going forward at the graduate level and the career that I'm in right now. You know, it's so interesting how the people around us can influence us in the choices that we make. Yes. And it's even better when it is our parents who influence us. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that even is better. true. So, you know, engineering is broad. And as I yep. was reading out your profile, very big words, you know, nanoscale <laughs> heat transport measurements, you know, right. um, and it's interesting that um, for you being in that space, you're very passionate about it. So for us who are outside of it, give us a, how do I put it, simplified um, explanation of what space you play in, in this engineering space. Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And um, sorry, my bio was written, uh, it's a generic bio statement that I use at technical conferences. I think I was just a bit lazy. I should have you know, done a better job in providing you know, a simplified version of that no, no, or, or no. more publicly no. accessible um, version. Uh, but, but nevertheless, um, what, what really I want you to, uh, of your viewers uh, to think about um, is we use a lot of electronic devices today. We have smartphones, we have, you know, um, you know cell phones, we've got computers, um, several portable computers, right, that do different things, um, displaying content, you know, text editing. Now we can, you know, um, you know, you know, we have transactions that you know, several transactory operations that we that we run on our on our phones, contacts in our bank accounts, and all of that stuff. But at the at the back the back end of this software interface that you see, right, is uh, a thousands upon thousands of tiny devices which we call transistors, right. So these are essentially electrical resistors, right? They're able to encode information, right? When this transistor is in its on state or its off state. So all the operations that you see that are performed on the computer visually at the back end are some tiny electronic devices that enable those things to happen. And one of the, one of the things we observe is that when we use our uh, devices for long periods of time, they get hot, right? Mm -hmm. you, we can, we can feel the hotness, right, of, of these devices. And once that happens, we notice that the performance, you know, in our computers gets slower. We have to shut down our phones and restart them again, you know, and all of that. And the reason is because these tiny devices get hot over time, right? We can't, and, and when they are too hot, their performance uh, characteristics degrade. Uh, and, and so they're not as effective in storing information and in processing data, which ultimately is displayed. 
And so my interest really is trying to understand the fundamental principles associated with um, cooling devices, heating devices, in such a way that one can design new types of you know, uh, transistors, new types of materials that are, that are, are tailored right, to enhance uh, you know, cooling of materials in such a way that the performance of electronic devices can be efficient. So that's, in a nutshell, is one of the aspects of my research. The other aspect of my research is I'm also interested in problems that are connected to the human condition. So, for example, there are several parts of the world where potable water is not accessible, right? Mm -hmm. There are, um, and, and, and how do we address issues of access to water, even though we're surrounded by oceans of water? The problem is like these bodies of water, as it were, are contaminated. They've got bacteria content and all of that. Um, but one approach that is fairly low cost and inexpensive, that that's common in, in, in Europe uh, and not, you know, over the last few years, there's been an interest in those sort of technologies in the United States, uh, is the development of wastewater treatment plants that use bacteria, what we call biofilms, right, to clean, clean wastewater uh, and, and then make them reusable. <clears throat> And what do I mean by that? Uh, so let's let's think about why we brush our teeth every day. We brush our teeth every day because biofilms grow on our teeth, and biofilms are you know they're films of uh, they're, they're biological films that contain bacteria, right? Uh, it's the reason why doctors sterilize their surgical instruments to make sure the bacterial load is removed, uh, and so that you know they can perform operations with sterilized and and uh, and clean surgical instruments. However, this bacteria, even though they are detrimental in certain contexts, in the context of wastewater purification, they can be uh, um, beneficial in the sense that this bacteria can feed on bacteria in, in used water, so water that we've used in our houses, we can purify them, or dirty water from boreholes and, and wells and things like that. Uh, and these are non-chemical based, so you don't need any chemical treatments, right? And the yield also can be very high. And so I, I collaborate with teams of environmental microbiologists uh, in my university, um, where we study, for example, how these biofilms grow on surfaces, how we can control their growth rate, how we can uh, control their, their proliferation on surfaces, uh, and also try to understand you know, how they decide to break up because these are active, mm. active biological materials. They're living materials, right? So we try to understand how we can tailor and, and, and take advantage of the uh, properties of these biofilms in order to uh, facilitate efficient wastewater uh, treatment and purification. And then the last thing I would add is um, mm. along those lines, we also, uh, in this general area of soft matter, which includes this, uh, this biofilms, um, we also look at other types of soft matter like tissue in the body. And one problem that we're currently uh, working on is this disease called glaucoma. So glaucoma is um, uh, it's an eye disease that is particularly pre prevalent in um, adults over the age of 40, um, where the, there's a buildup uh, of, 
of, of uh, fluid pressure uh, in the eyes, and ultimately, what that leads to is a dis, you know, uh, you know, uh, destruction of the optic nerve herd in the back of the eyes, uh, and ultimately, what that leads to is our vision is impaired. We can't see things clearly, and if this process persists, ultimately, uh, you know, we go blind, right? And so. Or if you think about the eyes as a giant balloon, not giant, but as a balloon, an inflatable balloon, then that's actually a mechanics problem that involves forces and 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 displacements or deformation. That's a that's within the lexicon of a mechanical engineer, right? And that's um, a problem that I'm that I'm currently working on, where we're trying to develop uh, based on mechanics or mechanical engineering principles. We're trying to develop tools that we can use to diagnose the onset of glaucoma. Uh, so you, when you walk to the, going to the doctor's office or your ophthalmologist's office, we want to develop tools that can be integrated with typical tools that are used for, you know, visualizing the eyes, right? But now we would have some predictive power to predict the, the um, uh, initiation of this glaucoma disease and also its progression over time. So these are the kinds of problems we work on. I hope this, uh, you know, my explanation is clear, um, you know, but this is what really makes me excited about science. The fact that, you know, science has a direct impact, uh, science in Nigeria has a direct impact on the human condition, on how we do things, but also uh, health status as well. No, I can hear your excitement and it's always nice hearing people be excited about what they do and passionate about it. So yes, yes. thank you for sharing that. So it's interesting being a scientist or being in the science field and your devotion to God. You know, science tries, or rather scientists try to prove there's no existence of God or if there's an existence of God. So how have you been able to mitigate those two worlds where ultimately God is the chief engineer of humanity and yeah. he plays a role behind the scenes. We may not see him, but his hand is in everything. That's an excellent question. And I come from the point of view and the um, school of thought that science in itself does not contradict, um, does not contradict scripture, but in fact, it provides what we call natural revelation. So if you, if you look at uh, a text of scripture like Romans, which is what I've relied on um, you know, quite heavily in the course of my Christian growth. Um, if we look at Romans 1 uh, verse 11, and I think somewhere around um, verse 18, exactly, it, it, it paints the picture of two types of knowledge. One that is naturally accessible, right? And one that comes by special uh, revelation, right? This natural accessible knowledge, which God has revealed openly and freely, is what we call natural revelation. That's science. That's ancient. That's uh, geography. That's history. Um, and natural science and 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 uh, natural revelation, as it were, is the tool by means of which God has revealed Himself, revealed attributes of Himself, His His magnificence, His uh, self-creation. His, um, his omniscience, his omnipotence. He's revealed himself now, not directly, visibly, but, but indirectly through the things that he's made, right? And I'll, I'll just read from, you know, say from verse 20, from verse 20 
because uh, I have my computer in front of me. It says for his invisible attributes. So I remember start from 19, right? For what can be known about God is plain to them, okay? Because God has shown it to them. And them he's referring to here, right, is all of humanity, which he, which Paul characterizes here as ungodly or, or unrighteous. Now, 19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we see in these verses here that in fact, humanity is without excuse. The atheist that says that God does not exist right, has to address the question, if God does not exist, what is the origin of things? What is the origin of all things? It's either we are self-existent, right? Mm. We are eternal, which means we've always existed, right? Or we are illusions, we're cosmic illusions. We don't exist. We are just apparitions. We're just um, figments of our imaginations, right? So, so here, here it is, here's where the, the atheist, right, of the agnostic runs into a wall. That how do you explain the origin of humanity? How do you explain the origin of all things? But when we look to scripture, when we lean to scripture, we see here that, in fact, God has revealed himself, not everything about himself, some aspects of his divine nature, his, his eternal power, his godness, right, through the things that appear, right, through geography, geology, biology, physics, chemistry. These are the natural sciences, right? And so I, I, I rely on this scripture as I form my ideology around the fact that science itself can be complementary. But the challenge here is that we don't learn about the salvific nature of God. God's power to save humanity cannot be gleaned through natural revelation. That's where we need special revelation. And that special revelation is not mystical. That special revelation comes through the gospel of Christ. And this gospel is not new, is not a novelty. In fact, has been spoken of from the foundation of the world in the entirety of scripture. If you look at the full scope, right, of the Old Testament, right, and the New Testament, the central subject or the central theme, right, of this text is the revelation of Christ, right? That's the lens through which I, I come to scripture, knowing that scripture itself reveals to us the salvific nature, the salvific plan and potential for humanity, right? So we have natural revolution, which is science, Right? And then we have special revelation, right? which is what the scripture reveals, which is the gospel of Christ, which is the content of scripture. You know, I can't even add anything more to that. You know, it's interesting to hear this perspective and also your reflections on it. It sounds like it's something that you've really been pondering and reflecting for a long time. Yes. So to build up on this, the, the Old Testament was revealing Jesus Christ and his coming. Yes. So how do we, for someone who's listening to this for the first time, in his redemptive plan, how yes. do we play a role in that? And combining with your word imputation, how does it all add up? 
Oh yeah, so that's an excellent question. So we start with the um, we start with this premise, okay? That scripture itself is the inspired word of God. You know, we 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 start with the fact that we don't have anything to add to scripture. Scripture itself, through through several generations, right, was revealed by Christ, not in the sense that God parachuted the Bible down from heaven, right, or that he he um, forced people to write what they did not intend to write. In fact, what we start with is the premise that scripture was um, written by human authors, right? The Genesis was written by a human author. Revelation was written by a human author. The gospels were written by human authors. But God, by his spirit, superintended the writing of the scriptures. They wrote in the languages that they understood. They wrote in with the with confined by the knowledge of natural revelation that they had at the time. But within it is the plan of God for human redemption. So that's sort of where we start from because it puts the authority of scripture not on the person delivering it, not the person speaking it, but the authority of the scripture is vested on the true authority who is God himself, okay? So that's sort of my, my, my starting point. And then the next point to, to, to think about is as we ponder on the concept of imputation, we have to think about how has imputation been expressed in the entirety of scripture, right? And to really see it, I like to, to go back to the beginning where Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, okay? And they, you know, God planted them in Eden and everything around them was perfect. And he gave them some instructions. You can eat everything, but this tree of the knowledge of good and evil I'm not going to allow, you know, you don't, don't eat of it, okay? And um, we see that in some interaction that Eve had, you know, with the serpent, some, some cunning beast uh, or cunning animal that God had created, um, Eve was tempted to partake of this, of this tree. And the, the first experience, right, of sin, that all of humanity experienced in Adam, right, was this awareness of our nakedness, our awareness of shame, right? This awareness that, you know what, there's something defective about us that prompted them that even though previously they were not, they didn't have this perception of nakedness before the presence of God, it prompted them to run away to hide themselves, but also to flee the presence of God, right? And we saw later on in Genesis 3 that in conversations with God, God asked them, who told you that you're naked, mm. right? Who told you that, you know, did you eat of the, of the tree, of knowledge of tree, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Um, because they hid from the presence of God. God had to call them out, right? But what is instructive about that, that passage you know when you read it right is the fact that God said something you know um, you know very uh, unique in, in this passage uh, or rather that was written in that passage that when they ate of the knowledge of good and of the tree of knowledge of good and evil 
they didn't ex exactly die, literally. But what happened was their eyes were opened. There was a sense that they know what their destiny is based upon, that they became autonomous. They became creatures of God whose livelihood depends on their human effort and their abilities. So you notice that what they did in response to that was to sew clothes, sew, sew um, garments made of leaves. They did something to protect themselves. And all, all through humanity, we see that this very uh, characteristic of fleeing the presence of God, of walking in shame and guilt, is a byproduct of the sin, of this original sin that was imputed to all of humanity. So in fact, in Adam, as Adam and Eve sinned, they are, they, they are actually representatives of their descendants, the entire human race, mm. right? And so we see that the same thing they did in response to sin, which is to flee the presence of God and to hide their shame and to hide their guilt is exactly the same condemnation that John spoke about when he said, you know, in John three fifteen and on, when he said, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But this is the condemnation right that christ came into the world but men love darkness because their deeds are evil so you see the natural tendency of all of fallen humanity is to hide from the presence of god now this may this this is truly you, you have to think through this because we we have the tendency of thinking because we have religion that we're that we're seeking God. But in reality, if we truly trust what the Bible says and what the Bible declares, in reality, what it is that we are creating caricatures, we are creating, you know, systems that makes us comfortable to assume that we're pursuing God because God calls these things as darkness. In fact, what we're doing is fleeing the presence of God because of our guilt our inferiority and our shame. So imputation actually begins, right, when we consider original sin, the sin of fallen humanity, right? Now, let's now think about how God provides this restoration. How does he restore us back into this, to his presence? Because he planted, you know, his, his, his um, fiery angel in, in Eden and ultimately sent you know, sent uh, you know all of humanity outside of the, out of out of his presence. Now, um, I'm going to trace, go through a historical, a little bit of a historical journey here, um, you know, in, in order to to make the point. Um, so, what did he do? First, he brought the the sacrificial system, right? And with Adam, sorry, with Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel. And what was the sacrificial system designed to do? At the, at the height of the sacrificial system is the, is the atonement, right? The atonement, we, we see the high priest, he picks up, you know, the bulls, you know, and the rams, he slaughters them, you know, on the, uh, you know, on, on the altar, and then brings the blood into the holies of holies, the, the holiest place where the Ark of the Covenant um, is located. And then the blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. That mercy seat is held between the two cherubs that covers. And if we look in the books of Psalms, we'll see that that 
um, that sim that you know the that uh, mercy seat itself uh, is uh, is a reference to the throne of God. Actually, you know uh, the throne of God. That underneath that seat, you know, obviously is the law. Uh, you know, Aaron's uh, staff that budded, and etc. The law symbolizing, you know, the the metric through which God brings judgment or through which God brings righteousness, uh, you know, to all of humanity. So before the throne of God, we are all guilty. All of humanity is guilty, you know. But what God did was to provide a means by which humanity, right, particularly in this narrow sense, there is the the children of Israel will be justified before him, will be considered righteous before him, will be considered worthy to engage in a relationship in his presence um, with him. And so what that meant was that there will be a covering on the mercy seat, okay? And that covering was through the blood. And then the other thing that happened was the um, the sins of the people were, were transferred onto the scapegoats and that scapegoat was driven into the wilderness, right? So we see a couple of things here. There was a covering, right? This covering of the mercy seat, right? In the same way, God in the beginning, right? When Adam sinned, also provided a covering, right? Of the, uh, of the, um, of Adam and Eve because he sewed for them clothes. Mm. He actually, he killed an animal and then covered them, right, with the skin of that animal before he sent them out of the garden. So what these episodes, what they point to is the fact that our ability to heal ourselves of the guilt that we incurred, right, by seeking knowledge outside of God, right, God was going to restore, God was going to provide the perfect covering, right, through a different means, through a sacrificial system, right, and, and so that was, that's what, what some of these, um, you know, uh, especially, particularly the, the uh, offerings and the sacrificial system in the Levitical priesthood uh, communicates. Now, we fast forward to the New Testament, where we learn, for example, that the blood of, of of bulls and goats and all of these things are not sufficient, right? They're not sufficient, right, to, to purify our souls of sin and to make us justified before God. So what specifically did Christ do in bringing our justification? Well, a couple of things. The first thing is that Christ came to the earth as God in human flesh. We know his name is Emmanuel, God with us, etc. Um, but he lived a life of perfect obedience. He didn't come, go from heaven straight to the cross to die for our sins, right, as a sin bearer. But instead, he lived on the earth for a, for a period of time. And it's important that we appreciate both his life and his death, because in his living, he had to live a life of perfect obedience, right? And in his death, his death had to fulfill, right, the requirements for the atonement of the sins of uh, of, of, of all of humanity. And so in his death, God transferred our sins unto him. He was punished on our behalf, uh, right? And so, and then in his rising, God, in his resurrection, God accepts, right, his, his sacrifice. But in his life, he earned a righteousness that no human being could earn because they had to obey all of the law. Hmm. And so what we see uh, in imputation is that God imputes to us, he imputes to us the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ, that perfect righteousness that we could not work for. He imputes it to us, 
right? He clothes us with the righteousness of Christ, okay? Right, even though we in ourselves, in our, if we look at our souls, we'll see sin, we'll see um, a, a lot of things that we're doing wrong, right? However, God imputes to us that perfect righteousness, that righteousness that we did not work for, that righteousness that belongs to Jesus Christ. And then God imputes unto Jesus our guilt. He imputes unto him the guilt for sin, right? And our lifestyle of sin, our transgression of his law, he imputes it to, to Christ and punish Christ on the cross of Calvary, right? And we know that that sacrifice itself is accepted because God raised him from the dead, mm. right? And so we have this sort of double imputation, right? The imputation of our sins to Christ, our guilt to Christ, and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. So that's why the scripture says that having been justified by faith, in Christ, we have peace with God, right? The war is over, right? The the um the hostility that we that we have and that we have with God is completely over because now we are accepted. We are accepted before God. Now we have no more shame. We can come before the presence of God naked and not be ashamed, right? We can come before Him because we put on the righteousness. Of Christ, so I'll stop here. I know I went, I spoke a little bit <laughs> longer than I, I would have desired. <laughs> no, I truly appreciate you taking the time to take us through, because imputation is a big word. We can assume that yes. we can, we understand it in this context, but your thoughts have helped us understand it better. So to wind down the conversation. Is there anything else that's still on your heart that you want to share with a listener? And um, yeah, I just want to appreciate you as well for coming on to the show. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so again, I, I um, this is a word that I've that I've reflected on quite extensively over the last um, year or so, and the reason why it's important, not just to me, but I think it should be important to all of us is this is the basis for our redemption it's the basis of our standing with christ to be honest with you for many years i have not understood the basis of my justification and what it has produced in me is a form of religion that is devoid of god i have sought i've strived to be righteous i have strived to earn god's favor i have um worshipped people instead of god and this I, I have believed that christ's mediatory responsibility is not sufficient and so i need to go through human mediators and this may surprise you that oh you, you seem to you know be knowledgeable about these subjects and you, you know you, you seem to be educated but culturally speaking our culture particularly you know, I don't want to general, I don't want to be stereotypical and say in Africa, but I would say that, our, you know, growing up in Nigeria um, is, our culture is built around our leaders. Uh, and that's not wrong. But I think the purpose of our leaders in the body of Christ is to connect us to Christ because Christ is the mediator of the new everlasting covenant. There can be no other mediator. 
yes. right, of the new heaven. So I want to encourage everyone. It's important that we know that we are saved by grace. We're saved by the grace of Christ, right? In Christ alone, through the grace of Christ alone, right? By the finished work of Christ alone, nothing else can be added to it. Not our human effort, nothing. That doesn't mean that we do nothing. We fold our arms and then it's over. No, we have to grow in sanctification, in holiness, in our dedication to God, living for God, pleasing him all the days of our lives. This is the will of the Father. Thank you for saying it so well. only person to the father is jesus christ and it's only him who is the chief mediator so dear listeners i hope you've picked one or two things from this conversation and whatever you picked up i hope you will apply it into your daily lives so until the next episode continue being brave